Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today we'll be talking to Vera Ferreira about doing fieldwork in Europe, particularly in Portugal. Before we turn to the interview, just a reminder that you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have a question about fieldwork or a story to share, our email address is fieldnotespod at gmail.com. So with that business out of the way, let's turn to the interview with Vera. Okay, so welcome Vera Ferreira. Thank you for coming on to the Field Notes podcast, the first inaugural interview. I thank you for inviting me to be part of it. Of course. Uh, So to start off, I'm going to read a short bio about your background in linguistics. After taking the master's degree in English and German studies at the University of Coimbra in Portugal and getting an MA degree in general linguistics and linguistic typology at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, Vera completed her PhD in general linguistics at the University of Munich and specialized in language documentation and endangered languages in Europe. From 2008 to 2012, she was responsible for the documentation of the endangered language Mendrico within the the DOBIS project financed by the Volkswagen Foundation at the University of Regensburg. Correct. (laughs) Since 2010, Vera has been the chair of the Interdisciplinary Center for Social and Language Documentation and its head of the Language Documentation and Language Typology Group. She has since been involved in several projects focusing on the documentation and study of minority stroke endangered languages of Europe, such as Mendrico, Fala, and Bavarian, with a special focus on lexicography, as well as in training in these areas of expertise. Between 2016 and 2018, Vera was responsible for the Endangered Languages Archive at SOAS, University of London, dealing with issues related to language documentation and preservation, data management and archiving. Currently, Vera is the Archive Development Officer, giving support to linguists documenting endangered languages and also communities who want to document and archive their languages. She also volunteers in language revitalization projects around the world. Thank you. So that's Vera. Yeah. (laughs) a little bit out of breath after reading that. (laughs) (laughs) So first, can you tell us a little bit about your background in linguistics, why you got interested in Mm -hmm. linguistics? Um, It started when I was six, (laughs) which is crazy, right? Mm. Uh, So when I started to read, I was always interested in, or when I went to school, to, to primary school, I was always interested in languages. And I always asked my parents, why? I have, I'm only a speaker of Portuguese. I wanted to be a speaker of other languages as well, but my parents are only speakers of Portuguese. So, But I couldn't understand that. I want to be part of a multilingual world without mm-hmm. understanding what that means. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at the moment in Portugal, at that time in Portugal, we could have um, a magazine which is called, was called Bravo. It is a German magazine. You have um, reports about music, bands with posters. And um, so this kind of teenager stuff Mm -hmm. 
and I wanted to understand what they are writing. And that's why I asked my parents to buy me a dictionary for German. And from that moment on, I started translating all the words that I could find in a magazine. And my interest was always for German. So German. And my mom always said always that you speak because I speak when I when I sleep. Mm. And she said all the time, um, this is strange. You say strange words when you're sleeping. And like, danke or uh, <laughs> hello. Also, hallo. And, um, and then I figured out that German was being, becoming part of me. And uh, this, this interest in other languages started from that point on. So then I went to the university and for me it was clear I want to do something with German and with languages mm -hmm. in general. But I also like mathematics. So And if you go to language or if you decide to study languages, you don't have mathematics anymore. Mm. But for me, the linguistics, the grammar of a language is like the mathematic part of a language. Mm. And that's why I became so interested in linguistics and um, getting to know better the, what linguistics is about. And of course, the f my first graduation was about um, German and English. So I was focused on German and English anyway. Mm. And um, but more we had two two parts at the university of coimbra we had uh, the literature part and so it is philology philo 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 and this was still in portugal this was still in portugal yeah i started in portugal from i started in in i went to the university in 1995 mm. and uh it was to study english and german but not english and german as only linguistics but this is a, a it's a philology study mm. and you have the combination of language and literature together and of course if I identified more with the linguistic part and mm -hmm. less with the literature part, but of course I had to study both. Mm -hmm. And it was um, there was a lot of um, culture and um, historical background on both languages, not only the um, British variant of English, but also the American tradition and everything. So um, when you studied, it, and for German it was only Germany, it was not the other countries that speak German, but for English it was very diverse and mm. um, and during my English training at the university, we had a teacher or several teachers that were more into feminism. Uh -huh. And that's why I, oh, wow. I got interested in that as yeah. well, but always connected to English. So it's, it's, it's interesting for me. German was the language that I yeah. wanted to search on or to work on. And uh, English, I connected to something that is different to what I know, to mm -hmm. a different reality that I know. But I also always connected language to different experiences, different ways of leaving the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, that I speak several languages people say that when uh, when I speak a language I, I gesticulate completely under uh, completely differently mm -hmm. and uh, people and and my voice my tone changes if I speak in English if I speak Portuguese or if I speak German for mm -hmm. instance and this is really interesting because they became part of my personality yeah but uh, this interest in linguistics and language started very early in my life in fact yeah. I've had that experience as well. Before I moved to Japan, a couple of people who were Japanese told me, "Oh, you'll have trouble in Japan um, because you're you're too outspoken. You're too your personality is too strong, especially as a woman." But I didn't actually find that to be the case, and I always wondered about it because, you know, I. I think my, my personality in Japanese is actually a little bit more docile. <laughs> on, maybe it's partially my insecurity yeah. about my my fluency, but yeah. in English, I'm much more confident mm. saying, oh, I think this, that, and the other, whereas in Japanese, I think I'm more go with the flow. Yeah, and the other thing is, for me, for instance, and when that happens, then you know, okay, something is wrong with you. Mm. I start dreaming in German. Mm. So And still now, so from... From, from the moment I can remember, 
my dreams are always in German. So even people that speak English or Portuguese in their everyday life, in my dreams, they speak German, which is strange. So if you start dreaming in a language that is not your native language, yeah. and, I, and German was not a native language for me, I, I was not exposed to German, uh, for instance, as a um, migrant child or migrant children are, or I just went to Germany for my own interest mm -hmm. and not because and, and I was already 20 so it's not that I grew up with German but German yeah. was already part of my dreams right so because you had that German dictionary that yeah. your parents bought you yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and maybe that's why we, that's the reason why I got so interested in lexicography later on I'm, I'm because you had a dictionary to, yeah, I'm connecting both things at the moment <laughs> yeah maybe Okay, so can you talk a bit about your connection to the field sites? I've, I mentioned three communities that mm -hmm. you have worked on, but maybe today we can talk specifically about Fala and Mendrico, mm -hmm. which are communities that are both in Portugal, yes? No, so one is in Portugal, the other one is in Spain. Oh, Fala is in, in Spain. Spain, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, how, how did you find those two languages? How did you end up working with mm -hmm. them? So Mendrico, it was a really interesting story because when I was studying at Coimbra, a friend of my father, who lives in the same village as my, fa my, my father lives, knew that I was studying languages. Mm -hmm. And he gave him a kind of glossary. And this glossary was a Mindrico glossary. Mm. And my father came home and gave it to me as a present. And I said, wow, what is that? I need to go there. I need to it was not far away from my parents. It's only 40K, mm -hmm. so 40 kilometers away from the village where my parents are. And I thought, I need to go there. I don't know that. It exists, and mm -hmm. I need to, to make some research on that. And then it was in the year 2000 when I... Yeah, I got it in 1999, exactly. I got it in 1999, and then I thought I need to figure out a way of doing some research on this language. And, uh, yeah, so I got involved with Mindrico. I, got, um, I started working on Mindrico because of that. I, I just started. So mm -hmm. I got this glossary, and I wanted to know more about it. Then I went there. And I had two, three teachers, in fact. So one guy that was teaching me, so a member of the community mm -hmm. that had a, a cafe. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the speaker of the language. And he was growing up uh, their child, his children in Mindrico. Mm. Um, oh, and wow. it was a really good exposure for me because I was was working with him in the cafe mm -hmm. and I could listen to people. I, I didn't know a word about, I didn't know anything about Mindrico. And, uh, but I could learn. I was there one month together with him living with him and and listening to the to the language and to what people say about it and i had another another teacher which is more focused on or is he is still more interested he was he has a, a um, grand school teacher mm. uh, but he was always interested in the history part of mm the community yeah. not only Mindrico is is um is not I cannot say he's a fluent Mindrico speaker he's not but he was always interested in the etymology of words Mindrico words mm -hmm. and he is an authority in the community so what oh. he says uh, is being accepted by the community yeah. if there's a necessity to create new terms mm -hmm. uh, he is the, the guy to go and to ask for these new terms yeah. and what he decides it is accepted by the community so he was my teacher on this historical background mm -hmm. and I had another person which uh, I'm so glad I have met from the beginning on that support me supported me from the very first moment on and he put me in touch with other um, mm, language consultants so yeah and he was also reporting on my work in the journal in the local journal in the local oh, newspaper nice. he was the director or 
co-worker at the local newspaper and every time I needed something or uh, when he thought it is important that the community knows the work that she is doing then he wrote something in, in the local newspaper and it, this helped me a lot to be, to be integrated in the community mm-hmm. so I started yeah almost 20 years ago working on Mindrico, yeah. Wow. and Fala you asked me about Fala uh, to be honest let me think I knew that Fala existed because mm-hmm. it's not it is it is spoken in the border between Portugal and Spain and I knew already there was another language there that was it is fluent so I mean it's not it is endangered in terms of the amount of speakers and the influence of Spanish mm-hmm. but it is not um is intergenerational transmission It is it is so. transmitted and the, the children are only getting are only learning or at least they were only learning Spanish when they went to school. Mm-hmm. So the fir- their first language was still Fala. Fala. But the Fala is not officially recognized as anything. Mm. And a good friend of mine is a re- started researching on Fala. And we were working together because he was interested in Mindrika and he wanted to know the work that I'm doing with Mindrika and was sharing with me his interest for Fala. And then I thought, okay, let me go there and see what is wrong. Or... What is not wrong, but what exists there. Yeah. And um, and because it is so close to Minde. Which just, is where Mindrico is. Where Mindrico is spoken, yeah. Yeah, this is a long story. I was living <laughs> with the community, but I think we are going back to that later. Yeah. And, um, and then I went there and I, I had already some contacts. And because this friend of mine, which is also a linguist, gave me. And from that moment on, I decided, okay, let me do something with Fala just to document the language. I was, mm-hmm. I was not so interested in uh, focus my research on Fala the same way as I've done it for Mindrico. But I um, I just wanted to document the language because now it is still spoken in a very fluent and, and constant way. Mm-hmm. But the Spanish pressure pressure is, is growing. Mm-hmm. And we'd... We don't know how long it will last, yeah. at least with this frequency. Mm-hmm. And my, my main goal was to document the language the way it is spoken today. So that's why I did field work and some documentation on Fala too. And Bavarian? Yeah, I lived in, in Bavaria, so I lived in Munich. In Germany. In Germany. <laughs> and that's why I, uh, I wanted to document what I had there. And mm-hmm. I was doing, I was responsible for uh, language documentation at universities, so for the courses connected to language documentation. And I thought, um, because normally the students think they need to go abroad to very exotic places to do yeah. field work, and normally Europe is being disconsidered in language documentation. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to show them that you just need to open your house door and uh, do research. And this is what we have done. And together with the students, we created a, a multimedia dictionary, of course, a small one mm-hmm. for Bavarian. Uh, but I think I could motivate them to work more on the language. Yeah. Yeah. That that point you just made about how people always imagine that fieldwork can only be done in the most exotic places, I think it's very common. Uh, yeah. But actually, most most places do have a lot of ling- linguistic diversity, and yeah. every country, almost every country, has some kind of endangered or minoritized language yeah. that needs research and documentation. And, and not only that, the problems that you face when you are doing field work it doesn't matter if you are in a very exotic place or mm-hmm. if you are even in your own country, which is my case, where yeah. I do most of my field work. Uh, the problems are the same. The mm-hmm. mistakes are the same. The problems that you face as for your own life are the same. And the conclusions that you can get are also the same. Yeah. So 
of course, the experience is different because um, sometimes the cultural shock is much bigger than when you are in a reality that you know already. Or if you do research in Europe in general, for instance, in my case, for every European doing research in Europe is not that foreign, right? Right. But you face other problems mm -hmm. that probably you are not going to face if you're going to Papua New Guinea, for instance. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Uh, about the, the problems? Yeah, or? well, the problems of <clears throat> doing research in a place that is, it's not your own culture, but it is your own country. So you are not a member of the community, but the, at the same time, maybe it's unexpected to feel so out of place because yeah. you think, oh, well, I'm still in Portugal. Why am I having these problems? So the first thing is connected to the language, the language data that you want to collect. When I went to Minda the first time to do the field work in 2000, wasn't the year in the year 2001 mm -hmm. um of course everybody talked to me in portuguese yeah. because they knew she is portuguese yeah and the language that we can speak to her is portuguese right so this is this was the first barrier and the same happened in spain when i was doing field research in in fala because fala is very close to portuguese in some sense so it's fala has influences from portuguese and from from spanish it's a own language, it's a language on its own. But um, if people knew that I was from Portugal, then they will try to simplify the way they speak mm. and uh, use a kind of Portuguese similar way Creole. of talking <laughs> that I couldn't understand. It would be better if they have spoken in Fala. Yeah, but this is one of the major problems that I got when I was, when I was doing field work in these mm. two places. It was completely different for Bavarian because the reality is completely different. So, uh, but, the, the question that I had in, with Bavarians that people ask me, why are you interested in Bavarian? You're mm -hmm. a Portuguese, but it, this is common. Yeah. You probably also heard that when you were doing your own field work. Why yeah. are you interested in, in researching in a language or researching on a language that is not connected to you? Yeah, right? it did happen to me, but actually I think it... Uh, in a way valorized the language I was looking at because when people heard that I had come all the way from London yeah. to study their language, which they call only a dialect because yeah. the Japanese government does not recognize it, they were a bit flattered, I think, mm. and they were like, oh, wow, she came all the way here just to, to listen to us sing some of our island songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then people were very excited and very happy to work with me. Yes. I had come so far. Yeah, I had exactly the same experience with the Mindrika community because they were not valorizing the language mm. anyway because it's not officially recognized and yeah. they called it a slang, mm. which is even worse than a dialect. Yeah. And um, when they noticed, okay, she's coming and she has support from uh, the, the Volkswagen Foundation. So the thing that the thing that we speak must be something important. It must be important. So it it helped to it helped them to valorize what they have and mm -hmm. to make them understand. Of course, this is the influence from external factors, but this happens in every community. Yeah. This happens in every community, I think. Yeah, definitely. And there are other problems there because you asked me what, are, what mm. were the problems. Even being in my own country, doing field work in a community that is it's not your community, mm -hmm. you, feel, you have moments where you feel so depressed because you just want to go out. You just want to leave the community. You don't want to, to speak to anyone. Yeah. But you need. You are doing your job. So you are. You need to 
show interest in what they are saying. (laughs) You need to participate in their own activities, even though you are not interested at all in in this kind of stuff. Or, I mean, the social part of it. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the language as such. Of course, the language always interested me. But the the social part, the the parties and whatnot. And uh, sometimes it is difficult to... Have the energy. Yeah, and be always on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Th- there are times where you say, "Oh, I just want to switch off. Yeah, I don't want nobody to bother me. I don't want to have nobody around me." And this happens. It doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, because you get in this full emergence situation, mm-hmm. and you cannot get out of it very easily. Yeah, it happened to me as well when I was in a mommy and I was staying with a host family, which meant that you do have to always be on. And most of the time, it's not a problem, but. When you go from, you know, living in your own place and then you're suddenly yeah. in a family where, you know, complete immersion, like you say. And the only time I was alone was when I was asleep. Exactly. So you have to be like up for anything people want to do. If they say like, oh, let's go here. Let's do this. Let's do that. You have to be up for it, you know, because that's your job. I think this will change when you do more field work. And in my case, I lived with a community like um, nine years which yeah. is a while. <laughs> so from 2000, no, not nine years, seven years. So from 2010 to 2016, mm-hmm. I lived with the community. And um, what year could you say, I don't want to go to your party? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you come to a point where um, I was never accepted as one of them. So there was always, in, in, in Mindriku, there's, um, they have two words for inhabitants the ones that belong to the community mm-hmm. and the ones that did not belong to the community. So in, uh, so um, in the, the inclusive and exclusive um, mm-hmm. uh, terms like seems for inhabitants. And uh, they always show me that because they never called me a Sharal. Sharal is the one that belongs the to the community, the mm-hmm. inclusive one. They always call me the Kuvana. So that means that I was never part of the community, which is really good because this allows me to go away when I want mm. uh, and uh, because they knew okay if she's not here we don't bother so we are not mad because she's not part of the community yeah, yeah. so you were kind of free from the obligations yeah, in but a way that it took me a while to develop that mm. because at the beginning I thought oh I need to be on all the time yeah and I think this is what we think when we are doing field work yeah for the I first still time. think that <laughs> yeah yeah so th- I think this is one of the things that we need to learn and it comes with the experience and with the time that you spend with the community. Mm-hmm. If you have a limited time to spend with the community, you want to take the most profit out of it. And you, you should do everything that they want, or at least... Um, Within reason. Yeah, of course. But if there's a way, if you spend more time with the community and you are not feeling well, you will also see that your recordings will not be the same as if you are feeling well. So it's sometimes it's better to have a break mm-hmm. and do something else. Go out, if it's possible. Just go out and meet other people and talk to someone else. Have internet connection again, which yeah. is in, not in some place. It's not always possible in some place. Even in Fala, I had some problems with internet really? connection. And when I was doing the PhD... I was also doing field work, but not in the, with the Mindrika community, but with several. I was focused on um, uh, the connection between... Uh, so my main research question was transitivity in the language, but in spoken Portuguese. So I, I collected um, data from varieties of Portuguese from all over the country. And sometimes I wasn't... So when I did research in the north part of Portugal, 
I was completely isolated. Mm. I was sometimes 14 days in a commun- in, in a village and I saw one car, which was mine and nothing <laughs> else. <laughs> so, and there was no internet connection. It oh was, we are back to the year 2000, 2002. So there was no internet connection. That was the mobile phone connection was sometimes there, sometimes not. And even if you want to refuel your car, you need to drive like 30 kilometers. So you were completely isolated. And um, yeah, this influenced the way the way you see things, the, the way you prioritize, and it gives you also a lot of experience to other other things in your life. Mm-hmm. So you learn how to value things that you had before. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Can you talk about any uh, non-research? related challenges you had for example some culture shock we already talked about never having privacy or, yeah. or always having to be on all the time yeah. but was there anything else that you found difficult while you're doing field work yeah and for the Mindriku are they, they, this is a very religious community mm-hmm. and because I'm not so religious then I need to participate actively in a lot of religious activities and um, were you happy to do that or yeah I was happy to do that it was a different thing and I was uh, I was gaining um, experience for my life as well Mm -hmm. so for instance um, it is common to present a project to to the community and in my case I need to do it in the church so during a mass and (laughs) and it was strange for me to be there where the priest normally is and but not talking about the Bible, but talking about <laughs> a documentation project and the language. But it was great. It was the way, it was the best way I had to be known by the community, to be accepted by the community, mm-hmm. because I was there in a place where they like to be. Yeah, you were meeting them on their own terms. Yes, exactly. And yeah, but I had some challenges, but not with less with the Mindrico community. I was also older, but for the PhD, mm. uh, I mentioned before that I was doing the the research, collecting data in the north of Portugal, and they have completely different tradition, not traditions, but they have different customs. Customs, yes, and uh, the word for lunch or the word for dinner is different than what I'm used to, even though it is Portuguese. Yeah, <laughs> and for for instance, they um, they invite me very often to dinner. And I thought, okay, dinner is in the evening. And I always came in the, in the evening. But for them, dinner is in the afternoon because they have um, breakfast and lunch very, very early during the day. So I messed, I messed up <laughs> a lot <laughs> until I understood, okay, here is something different. And the other thing was with, the, with, with their breakfast, which for me was a breakfast. For them was already lunch. So in order to engage with them and go with them and collect, be able to collect my data I need to do the same activities that they were doing for instance mm-hmm. agricultural activities that they start very soon going in the field so. going yeah really going in the field literally going to the field with, <laughs> with and do the work that they were doing and uh, they offered me wine at 10 o'clock in the morning for me I was waking up yeah. <laughs> at 10 or 9 o'clock in the morning and for them it was already lunch so but to be accepted and uh, yeah, to be part of the community in order to get trust, I had to do that. You were getting well. drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning, it was like, oh, my God, how am I going to collect the data? <laughs> yeah. So, but it, we are talking about the same country, right? And yeah. uh, and this is the culture that I know. Mm-hmm. But in fact, I discovered that I don't know this culture at all. Mm. So the diversity is everywhere. Yeah. And the challenges are also everywhere. And you don't need to go very far away from your hometown or from your... Yeah, comfort zone. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, and then the last question I have is, can you tell us if you've ever experienced any data loss or oh, yeah. stories? Don't remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> the The worst thing that happened to me, and I cried a lot, was <laughs> when I was coming back from one of the villages where I was in um, collecting data for the PhD, and I, I was I wanted to do some holidays after that after that um, field stay. Uh, because I was collecting data in several villages around Portugal from north to south and sometimes you need to have a break and it was of the course. summer and I, I thought okay let's let because I need to, to drive near the coast and I thought okay let's stop here and go to the beach and spend here one week or whatever just to relax and I stopped the car I went to the beach and my car was robbed and and I lost they take they took everything that I had inside and including my data I was collecting, uh, doing my recordings with a mini disc recorder. Right. Uh, you cannot back up them easily, so <laughs> I had my. Can you describe the mini disc to the oh. millennial listeners? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a tiny. Uh, it's like a diskette, a disc, or like a, a cassette a, tape, a, maybe a, a flop disc, a floppy disc. Yeah, it's like one of those. Yeah, but uh, you put it inside a recorder, like a cassette player. Yeah, and you do your recordings. <laughs> so, like, imagine a cassette. It's very similar to a cassette, but more high technology for that time. Yeah. So, um, and they were smaller than the cassette. But you could not, it, it, isn't, it was not digital, so mm-hmm. it was analog. So yeah. I could not back up back the data up. in a very easy way. And I, of course, I hadn't, I hadn't done any kind of backup. So the, the people that got into my car and decided to take everything took also a camera, mm-hmm. the, the mini disc player and the mini discs. And I lost everything that I promised the community to give back. So at least the villages. It was we are not talking about a community because it was for the PhD. There were the different villages, and I promised them when I get back home, I, I because the camera is not a digital the video the, the photo camera is not a digital one. So you need to go to develop the film. Develop the film. <laughs> so I lost everything. Oh god. There was no pictures. There were no audio recordings, and the mini disc player was uh, or recorder was also was also stolen. So I lost like. 15 hours of recordings that, that I couldn't recover. That couldn't, <sighs> there was no way to recover it. Apart from these mistakes that we all do when we are on field work to forget, oh, forget to have batteries and you think everything is there. You prepared a lot before and then you come to the recording and you don't have enough batteries yeah. or, or you forget to have um, additional batteries in the mm. case that it stops. Because I was recording in several places where there was no electricity mm. um, and uh, you need to have batteries or you yeah. could not charge your, your recorder. And yeah, so I did all these mistakes that we normally do when uh, doing field work and additionally, and that's why you, you lose data, but additionally I got robbed. So <laughs> I lost more data. <laughs> Oh God! Do you have any any? What advice would you give to someone who's first going into the field? Be yourself. Mm. Just be yourself. Don't try to be accepted at in by force, as of forcing the acceptance. Just yeah. be yourself and and respect the community. Of course, it is a hard work because, yeah. as we said before, you need to be on and you need to. Uh, but you only manage to live with the community or spend more time with the community if you um are being genuine yeah and if you're if you be honest to yourself and if you're not feeling well 
just avoid doing recordings on that day because your recordings are not going to be good yeah that's Uh, true and just and if you need some time out just take it Mm -hmm. it's better to take the time out than to feel so depressed afterwards because this is very common that when you come from field work there is a phase afterwards where you feel like you get you are into a depression or you don't know what's going to happen what's happening with you yeah Uh, and if you can avoid it during the field stay so taking more breaks and uh try to reconcile with yourself and uh yeah, I think it would help a lot. Mm. And of course, don't forget the batteries, don't forget to back up, and don't, don't forget to turn, turn on the mic and close your car. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Okay, so thank you, Vera, for coming on the first episode of the Field Notes podcast. Uh, where can our listeners learn more about your research if they want to learn more about Mandrico or what you are doing mm-hmm. where can they do that I recommend everyone to go to the Seedlers website which is www.cidles.eu and you can learn more about the projects that we are developing the uh, they are connected to revitalization, language revitalization in general but also language documentation and language technologies for minority languages great thank you so much Vera. you're welcome You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening.